You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. So, uh, yeah, today's Father's Day. Uh, we're going to do a lot of these shows on Father's Day, so I get to do what I love and record. And we got to play with your new Father's Day present yeah, last I, night. Yeah, like an early Father's Day gift. I've had it uh, about a week and a half now. It seems longer. Maybe, maybe it's because you're always two weeks. talking about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I got a, a, a Kamado Joe grill, one of those Kamado-style grills. If, you, if you've seen the green, the big green egg, that's the big name in them, but... Uh, it's really I, cool. I really like this. I mean, you can dial in temperatures just like on the on the button and it will just hold it. You're not it's not fluctuating. It's not hard to get started. It's it's and it's a major upgrade because okay, so Mickey got it for me for Father's Day because when we moved into this house, we just got like a basic $100 Target grill and it's slowly been falling apart. One of the wheels <laughs> got um cut in half with the weed eater uh, it's <laughs> the vents don't close anymore um it's it's just it's a mess basically i can use it to sear a steak but that's about it so it looks kind of decrepit and so <laughs> we need um, to put a picture of that in uh, the paddle store <laughs> right but it's um but yeah so mickey got me this kamado joe grill and oh we've, we've been able to use it like four times and I really have enjoyed it. It's got a, it gives everything a really good flavor. It doesn't use a whole lot of um, charcoal even to grill. I mean, I've got it up to 500 shocked. degrees and had maybe, uh, what, two or three cups of ash out of the bottom right. of it. Yeah, it wasn't much at all. And so we, but we've done some vegetables. We've uh, we smoked some potatoes, wrapped them up in aluminum foil. Those like mini potatoes. Those were like freaking good and like totally cheated on my diet eating them <laughs> because, well, yeah but yeah. they're worth it <laughs> yeah so, so if, if uh we talked about food before we're probably going to talk about it even more now right <laughs> but, well and we, and we had steak last night yeah and... we had steak um if you were in norman the oklahoma city area uh i did find someone who's uh you know, I don't want to give his name on the air. I haven't talked to him about this, but right. uh, I, I found a local farmer who who's doing uh, grass-fed Black Angus at a great price. And uh, so if you're interested and you have the freezer space and buying a, a half of a beef. Mm-hmm. Um, or a whole one. Yeah. Hit me up. Private message me. Yeah. I'll let you know about that. It, it was it was very good beef because I mean, we even, you know, you're learning the, the ropes with this new grill. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. You, you and I both like them very rare. And these were well done. Yeah, I, I'm still learning the this grill. And, and also it was a thicker slice of beef than what we typically do. I, I had the, the processor slice them thicker. So I was, I'm still not sure how to get those thicker steaks just right. Um, I think I have a good idea of it from where we were last night, so I'm I'm gonna try to. But even at that, I mean, they were still tender, they were juicy, mm-hmm. they had great flavor, and it's it was what you wanted in a steak. Yeah, it was it was fantastic. Because typically I'd see that color and go, mm, no, yeah, <laughs> and but it was I, I ate every bit of it, and um, yeah, if there had been like three more there, I probably would have eaten those too. <laughs> oh so. my goodness, they were so good. So um. Shout out to my beef supplier if you're if you happen to be listening. <laughs> Your local pusher. <laughs> yeah, so good. Um, 
But uh, so uh, I don't know how to segue from there, but we are. Well, we're going to talk a lot about killing things and burning things and judges. <laughs> so uh, it kind of fits. Uh, kind of. <laughs> yeah. So so we are. <laughs> my wife's sending me memes about Father's Day from church. Anyway, but <laughs> so we're starting a new series today and we're we're starting judges and mm-hmm. I'm excited about that because uh to me that seems a little more of like what we intended to do when we started with Genesis. Yeah. Is we were going to kind of we're going to kind of do a a survey of just kind of skipping through hitting like odd and overlooked stories and then as we're going through of course Emily's pulling out all this research and she's going well even the stories we're familiar with there's a lot of overlooked stuff so let's just let's explore them. Yeah. Well, and Judges, I think overall is a book that it's kind of skipped. And I think when we talk about the book of Judges in the in church today, we might talk about Samson and Gideon and we might bring up Deborah, but there's more people in the book and we basically completely ignore the last half, which is probably the most disturbing part of the entire Bible. Oh, the, and, the book of Judges is insane. Oh, yeah. I mean, (laughs) it's, um, I remember reading, not reading, I was, when I was working for, actually, if anyone out there who, uh, you may have seen the videos from this company, Bluefish TV, I used to work in their mailroom. And so there was, you know, me and about four other guys who worked there. Uh, Usually there was three other guys. Sometimes we'd have a fourth guy hired on his temp help. But, you know, after you're, after you're working with four guys being the only people in the building after about a week and a half, you've had most of the conversations you're going to have with them. <laughs> Not that we didn't like each other. I mean, after the weekend, we kind of update everyone talking, but you know, there's just a lot of silence there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would uh, pop on, I had my iPod and I would just put on uh, either podcast or I'd put on uh, the U version Bible. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening to judges and going, wait a minute. <laughs> Um, because I know I had read it before, but when you, when you're not paying, like when you're kind of working and you're hearing the stuff, you're like, this is kind of disturbing. It is. And one of the things that I look forward to is we're going to kind of address some of the objections people have to the Old Testament, the Mm -hmm. whole idea that the God of the the Old Testament is this big, cruel, mean, nasty guy. And then Jesus comes along and he's all puppies and butterflies and rainbows. And, um, We're going to talk about some of the misconceptions because Judges deals a lot with violence and very directly. And so we're we're going to spend some time looking at why this is such a disturbing story and why it needed to be a disturbing story. Right. And so, uh, but before we actually jump to the scripture, what we're going to do this episode is primarily going to be talking about our resources uh, the manner of approach and some concepts and ideas that you need to be familiar with before we actually get into the text. And so I, I wanted to just share what I'm pulling from. So if anybody wants to, you know, I don't know, add to your library or read along or what yeah. have you, and just full disclosure, I'm not, you know, I'm not the smart person who came up with this. I'm stealing from other smart people. Yeah. And so... If you want to add to my library, you can buy this for me, too. This is, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's actually one of my favorite commentary sets. And I, I've got other books of the Bible in, mm-hmm. in this set. It's the, the New International Commentary, um, which is not affiliated with the New International Version of the Bible. Right. It's just that's the title of the commentary. And I've got, I've got other books of the Bible 
in this, and they're they are they're fantastic resource. So I'm well. I'm excited. One, th- one of the things the series does is it's not written by a single person. Mm-hmm. Each book is written by you know the expert on that book. And so uh, this one actually, uh, this is written by, uh, for those on YouTube, uh, by Barry G. Webb. And he is the senior research fellow who emeritus in Old Testament for Moore Theological College. That's in Sydney, Australia, if you haven't heard of Moore. Uh, (laughs) He worked three decades to write this. So a lot of time, a lot of effort Mm -hmm. and research put into this. he really focuses on the narrative element. You know, how does how do the stories connect? How do they fit together and work together? Uh, he's he's not as detailed in the language as I might like, but he's got good, solid understanding of the time and the uh, the culture, not just of the biblical scripture, but the entire community and and what's going on in the land of the world mm-hmm. in the Middle East during this time. And that's something you really want because if you just have someone who's good with scripture, they're missing out. And we're, we're actually probably hmm, a few weeks from now, anyway, we're going to get to a verse that if we just have the verse, we makes have no, no sense. Makes no yeah. sense. So that's um, one of the reasons I really enjoy him. The next one is um, struggle a little bit. Oh, we really are just talking about the resources. Yeah, we, okay. we, we, we really are. This well, is, I, don't, I don't know what I was expecting. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. This is the new international version of the, well, sorry, that's the, the type of uh, Bible they're using. Uh, the new American commentary. This is by uh, Dan Block or Daniel Block. Uh, if you listen to Naked Bible, you're going to know that Block's somebody that he goes to a lot. Um, Dan Block has, he's the professor emeritus of Old Testament at Wheaton College at the graduate school. His background is Semitics. That's classical Hebrew. Uh, he's done a lot of archaeology. Uh, again, very familiar with the culture and the timeline that Judges was written. He he focuses a little more on the grammar and language. Uh, he he's kind of looking for some practical application in the church today. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's really looking at the context within the whole of the scripture. Sure, and he he's probably a little more nuts and bolts than Webb. Now, I do think most both of those books, if you don't read Hebrew, you're still good. Right. They're, they're, they're totally accessible to, um, to anybody who wants to read them. I mean, it's kind of like reading a dissertation, but not quite like reading a dissertation. Yeah. That's what I, you're saying. <laughs> right. And it, it's not a devotional study. And that's the other thing we should point out since we're talking about mm-hmm. commentaries. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of different kinds of commentaries out there. There is like a devotional commentary, and this is what a lot of people read at home. And it really is about... How do you find the application in your life? What inspires you from this passage? Mm. And, and something to a lot of people to kind of get their day going, mm-hmm. um, get, get them focused. And, and yeah. there's nothing wrong with those. Uh, yes, but they're, they're a different kind. And we, right. we just need to recognize that. And then there's, there's uh, pulpit commentaries, which those are designed to help pastors put together sermons. Right. And they're, they're going to be more geared for presenting the message to an audience. And um, I'm not going to use those. I tend to just shy away from these. These are academic. These are something that mm-hmm. if I decided to do a peer reviewed paper one day, for whatever reason, I could pull on these and um, other academics would respect the information that these two men presented. And to me, that's very important because yeah. it's not about any particular theological stance as far as uh, denomination or 
a, a specific church, it really is about what the text says. Mm-hmm. So you don't have a lot of that. Um, there's not a lot of agenda-driven material in this. It, it really tries to be as objective as possible. And, you know, we've talked about how that's not always completely possible. Yeah. Well, and, and another thing uh, I want to point out about scholarly sources, and I, I, I don't feel like most of the people listening to this are going to take it, take the scholarly thing this way. There is kind of a view of a lot of the way scholars approach the Bible as trying to discredit Christianity mm-hmm. or trying to explain away certain uh, rules uh, and oftentimes uh, cultural rules the church mm-hmm. has imposed. And a lot of their stuff kind of actually does explain away some of the culturally based rules that the church imposes on itself. But their scholars get a bad rap for trying to make God less holy or less right. miraculous whenever, when we start looking at um, how things come together. And I'm saying that I think we've mentioned something like this before, but since we're at the beginning of a new series, right. we might have some people jumping on board here um, that we just want to kind of put that <laughs> out there. Scholarly work, um, particularly by um, what they call confessional scholars, people mm-hmm. who uh, are believers in, in Jesus. I believe or, the or, Bible, Bible was inspired. Yeah, who either believe in Christ or even in uh, even Jewish scholars. Mm-hmm. So con- what They're not trying to discredit the Bible. Right. They're not trying to get away with anything. They're not trying, you know, it's, but they're they, actually approaching it mo- oftentimes and even non-confessional scholars with a lot of reverence and a lot of curiosity. And the, the flip side of that is not only are they not trying to discredit the Bible, they're also not trying to soften the Bible. Right. And they're not trying to avoid the hard issues of the Bible because I remember being in church as a kid and oh, well, you know, you don't really need to worry about that. Or why would you ask something like that? You're causing problems. Academics love these questions because (laughs) they're just an excuse to dig in a little deeper. And that's the reason why I went with these two. I knew I could respect them. I knew that I could count on their work. And they do believe in the inspiration of the Bible. Now, they're looking at how God works that out. Does he work Mm -hmm. that out through a miraculous means or is it providential? Um. I should make a quick note yeah, there. Yeah, I'm like, explain the difference between those two. Yeah, uh, providential is basically when God works out good through the system that's set in place. Mm-hmm. The The birth of a child, we sometimes say it's a miracle. It's actually providential. God is bringing something good through a system that he set in place and that we can observe and understand. A miracle is when God sets aside the laws and rules of the system to reveal himself in some form. And so, you know, he's God, he gets to break the rules when he wants to, because he's the one who wrote the rules. So therefore, he's not actually breaking the rules. He's just modifying them for that it's, particular. <laughs> it's not breaking them, it's suspending them. And yeah. and we actually have, I mean, in, in rabbinic thought, there is this idea that you can suspend the rules uh, when it comes to saving life. Exactly, because you and, live by the law, you mm-hmm. don't die by it. And even and even we're given permission to do that mm-hmm. uh, in the in these discussions. If it's for the purpose of saving life. So it's right. not just, well, I guess it's not just something that's reserved for God, but we're made in his image. Right. So there's that. <laughs> uh, you know, and we could go on an interesting rabbit trail, but, you know, if, say, for example, you know, if you had to lie to save, to mm-hmm. keep someone from being killed, mm-hmm. God's okay with that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know. Well, and well, that's actually some of the questions that are presented. Is God okay with that? Um, 
you know, is it okay to break the rule in that situation or should we have faith that he would still take care of us in that situation? I'm sorry. I just started with the conclusion on that. We'll have to build it up later. <laughs> so, yeah. And that, but it is something we wrestle with and we're going to wrestle with that some, even in the second judge of, um, of Israel, because he uses a lot of deception mm-hmm. and is God okay with that. Um, but anyway, that all of this kind of you know, is going to give you some background on how we're approaching it. The third main uh, source I have, this is uh, The Prophets. It's from Art Scroll. Art Scroll is, they are probably one of the most respected and utilizes, utilized sources of Jewish literature in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, this particular one was edited by, uh, what's his name here? Rabbi Nosen. Sherman, and um, he is one of their main publishers and editors. He's been studying Hebrew since he was 10. He's, uh, yeah, he's <laughs> responsible for a lot of these translations. Uh, and these books, again, you don't have to know Hebrew for it to be accessible because what they have is this side is Hebrew, this side is English. So you you can reference back and forth if you know the languages, or mm-hmm. if, if you don't, you can just read the English parts. Now, because this is Jewish, uh, and what they've done is, this is not an original commentary. They, uh, they actually have drawn a lot of the rabbinic and the Jewish commentators from the Middle Ages. So, so it's kind of a compilation uh, of, uh, yes. of previous uh, scholars' work. It's uh, another good book that's kind of like that is the Everyman's Talmud. It's mm-hmm. it's more topical, right? Than than you know text driven, but it's 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 a good resource. But it kind of does that same thing. But if you've ever read that one mm-hmm. or you know seen it, that's, that I'm guessing that's kind of the idea you're talking about. Yeah, just, well, because when you start, this is what different people say. It's <laughs> well, because when you start looking at the Talmud and you try to study a, a portion of scripture in it, and you you got to see some of this when we were working on your book at OU. Oh, uh, you know, the Talmud's like this Encyclopedia Britannica set of how to be Jewish. Right. And so to look up a specific scripture, you have to go to the index and then it tells you where they deal with the scripture in any one of those books because it's not the, the Talmud itself is topical. Yeah. And so what they've done is they've taken the, the passages of the Talmud and the Gemara and other commentators that deal with this specific part of judges and put them in one place. So you don't have to do all that, that looking. Right. Um, but I love art scroll books are always, they're just pretty, they're fun to, to hold. And um, I think anybody who's done any kind of Jewish studies that we, we like having the art scroll on our shelves because it just looks nice. Um, you feel rich having them <laughs> in your house. <laughs> um, but. Well, are they expensive? Not really. Scroll? I think this one was like, well, I say not really. I I, I want to say this was either forty or seventy. I can't remember. Which is not bad for a good looking book that's printed with multiple languages. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And um, now because it is Jewish, one of the things I've found as I've gone through it, they really, really work to try to make the Jewish people look good and to kind of smooth out some of the uh, difficulties of the text. Uh, so a lot of times I'm not going to be pulling from this as much as I did with Genesis. Mm-hmm. because you, you will see examples as we go through. And uh, there's That's even fair. a couple of people who we know definitely were not Jewish. And they, they're not Jewish, 
But in here, they're going to explain why they really were Jewish. Okay. And so th- those kinds of, of arguments are, are in there. And of course, you know, we're going to add some articles because I'm never content with what I have at home. And uh, I'll be looking up uh, different things to add into the discussion. And I'll be bringing some other books in as I feel like it, it's appropriate. So, um, so that's kind of the basic um, where we're starting. And, and usually we're going to be reading from the ESV Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's my favorite as far as the most kind of not necessarily, well, it's accurate, but it's also literal. It's very sure. literal. And one of the critiques of the ESV Bible is that it's so literal that it's hard to read. I don't think it's that hard I to don't, read. I've never found that to be yeah. the case. But of course, we also grew up reading King James. <laughs> right. So, you know, that's a mm-hmm. difficult text to work with sometimes. Yeah. And so, and, you know, if you want to read in King James, that's great. And yeah, there, nothing against that. Yeah. yeah. It was a great piece of work uh and it's people have learned so much from it but um i have just found that you know basically we've got some newer manuscripts that since the time the king james was written through archaeological discoveries i mean dead sea scrolls being one of them and so um the the esv writers actually include a lot of that in their translation to help kind of answer some questions we had about the text Mm -hmm. and so i appreciate that so those are our basic four main sources but i also wanted to talk about some concepts and and what we need to know to okay so first of all we're this is safer show team that's the 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 what safer show t- show team no I, I don't i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> yeah that's the hebrew word uh name for the book of judges okay um it's kind of a misleading title because judges is not really we think of judges. Now, does the Hebrew word for it mean judges? It does. But even, even though it means judges, they still don't. None of these people. Well, there's one exception. Most of them do not fit the Hebrew definition of a judge. Okay. And so, like, if we go to Deuteronomy 17, verse 8 and 13 we get a uh, description of the judges. Let's just go there. And this is Moses. He's explaining to the people what a judge should be and what their jobs are. What was the passage on that again? Deuteronomy 17, verses 8 through 13. Uh, He says... Did you? I just found it. Okay, go if in any if any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal and another, or you one kind of assault or another, any case within your town that's too difficult for you, then you shall arise, go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose, and you shall come to the Levitical priest and and to the judge who is to off, who is in office in those days, and you shall consult with them, and they shall declare to you the decision. And I'm not going to read the rest of it, but, but because the, the important part is you're going to go to the judge mm-hmm. and the judge is going to be seated in the gates of the city is typically where he's going to be at, or he's going to be sitting outside of the tabernacle or temple. We, right. s- we see this in, um, in Ruth. We see this uh, again in another passage in Deuteronomy 21. There's basically judges who are within individual towns. But then there's like the judges that would be associated with the Sanhedrin. Okay. And so 
the main thing is judges don't go out. They stay. Right. And the judges in, in this book, they're all going out. They're, yeah, they're like Judge Dredd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they go out and... Yeah, and and do the do the trial on the spot and just kill people, right? Right, they're they're pretty much. I mean, that sounds you know crazy, but no, uh, that's actually pretty accurate <laughs> because they're not sitting behind a bench. They're not even sitting at the gates of any particular city. There's only one judge that sits and waits for people to come to her, and that's Deborah. Deborah yeah, and so she's the only one that gets anywhere close to even the biblical definition of what a judge should be. She's all like, y'all are all running around looking for trouble. You just hang out here. Trouble will find you. So. Well, <laughs> I think, yeah, we, we know that. Um, to, to judge, to judge the verb there is used of what the people are doing. So maybe another way to say that to carry out judgment okay. is more appropriate. Um, the title of judge actually is never once applied to any of the people. It, it, and we miss that. They're called deliverers. They're called liberators. Sometimes they're called rulers, but they're not called judge. The only person in the entire book who's called a judge is God. Okay. And I never realized that until I started doing this study. Um. And as a matter of fact, the word for judge does not appear in the entire last half of the book. So the, the title, like I said, little misleading. Uh, we don't have it in the last half of the book. Matter of fact, it's not going to show up again until 1 Samuel 4.18. And that's at Eli's death. And the scripture says that, you know, he judged Israel for 40 years. And... Um, it's indicating that Eli and Samuel are a continuation of the judges. Mm -hmm. They are both, uh, Samuel's the final judge in Israel. And so he, he could have been included in this book. Right. But. Um, Which is why it's such a big deal whenever Israel asks for a king. Because we think of, of Samuel being just mm -hmm. a spiritual leader, but he wasn't. He was actually... A political leader as well. Well, and when we get to the book of Samuel, I think we can even make the argument that, that he's trying to set it up for his sons to take over. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so he understands that being in this position, it, there's some prestige because Samuel is completely against the kingship. Right. Now, what's interesting about this is, and I know this is Samuel. Yes, but bonus material. Go yeah. Ahead. What, what's interesting about Samuel, Samuel is like hacked off at God. He does not want this kingship thing to go through, but he's still being obedient. And so even though Samuel's presented as against, God is presented as for. Mm -hmm. And it, there's an interesting kind of interplay that God and his prophet could have this dispute and Samuel can still be God's prophet. Mm -hmm. And I, I, that's going to be fascinating because I think we're talking about, okay, where to after judges. And I actually think that this would be a good time after Judges to flow right into Samuel because so much of what happens in the last half of Judges influences what happens in Samuel. Right. And so... Um, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the, the Judges, they never, um, even though they're rulers, they, they never rule on domestic disputes within the land. They're always against the oppressors. Right. So, again, that idea that they're not judges like 
like we think of them. And this is not a book about courtroom procedurals. No, <laughs> no, well, no, it's not. And there's there's reasons for that. Okay, so let me. This is going to play into this. First Samuel eight five. Israel demands a king to rule. Okay, so they they demand a melech. Uh, this is uh, that's the Hebrew word for mm-hmm. king to rule, and that's shepat. They they that's the word the the basis of shoftim or judge. So they're they're demanding a king to judge, to rule, to govern, and so this is an illustration that the idea of judgment when we talk about shoftim, it's not just executing a judgment that it really is or giving legal decrees. It is about governing the people mm-hmm. and the um they don't need any legal decrees this is the thing they don't need anyone to pass a new law yeah it's all there <laughs> they've got they've got all they need 613 laws of the torah uh they just need to make sure they need someone to help them make sure they're applying it correctly right and so that you were talking earlier about the difference between uh earlier this week about power and and governing. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. We we're. T- I was talking about. Um, well, <laughs> to the full context uh, was we were, we were talking about uh, this idea of of God's sovereignty and how there is a you know there's groups of Christians who believe that God controls every single atom individually mm-hmm. with his very fingertips and. And that he meticulously plans everything, and that he, if he doesn't, then he's not all powerful and he's not sovereign. And I think that's well. For one, English is just a sloppy language. <laughs> right. I mean, but I think if if we really want to think about that, I mean, I, I think we're conflating the idea of ruling with governing. And mm-hmm. God, God's put laws and He's built systems to work in a certain way. Mm-hmm. That providential and, mm-hmm. thing. And do, and does He know how the system works? Yes. Does He know how it's going to work? Yes, but that's not the same as controlling as it. controlling every little bit. And so to say that, you know, there's this meticulous determinism uh, is is the mark of sovereignty. That's different because we have example after example of uh, of people governing mm-hmm. under rulers. Right. And, and the, the governor, uh, you know, the, the ruler, Pharaoh, with, well, we just got done with Pharaoh and Joseph, mm-hmm. is Pharaoh tells Joseph, you can run the kingdom. You get to govern how things go, but mm-hmm. I am ruling. It's like, you know. And it's, Pharaoh has the power. Yeah. Yeah. And Pharaoh has the power. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's just one example out of many that you see over and over and over well, in it's... the Bible. And that's, and so what you're saying is, is they don't need someone to make new rules mm-hmm. uh, in there. You don't. They don't need a new form. Uh, they they don't need a new sovereign decree. Right. What they need is someone to put into action what they already know. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, building on your your Pharaoh Joseph. I mean, that, again, Samuel with God himself. He, he's not happy about what God's doing, but he's still carrying it out. Mm-hmm. And it's God's power that enables him to do some of the stuff that he does. And Samuel recognizes that even though his personal desire isn't, it's really in direct opposition to what God wants. Right. And so uh, something to really think about. Now, this word shoftim, uh, we have something called cognates. So I'm going to a little grammar lesson here. Cognates are words in a different language that have the same origin and meaning 
uh, they're connected by the roots. And so we have this word shoftim or a word that's very, very similar that if you could read it in one language language or hear it in one language, you would automatically associate it. Uh, I'm tr- trying to think of a good English. Uh, good example. Uh, dorme in French is sleep. Dormitory is where you sleep. Okay. Um, that's one of my favorites um, because it's it's right there and it's one of those that's obvious and you don't realize it until you're 36 one day talking to your kids about words. Um, so that's my story anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. So, okay. So Hebrew has the same thing and we have uh, three languages, the Akkadian, the Ugaritic, and the Phoenician that all have a word very similar to, to Shoftim. It's a cognate. Mm-hmm. And so, or dormant also. Dormant, yes. So. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. So when, but whenever it's used in those three languages, it means um, basically a tribal's chieftain. Mm-hmm. So that's something completely different in our minds from a judge. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you'll hear people talk about, um, at this point, this, these were charismatic leaders. Now, when we say charismatic, we aren't talking about the denomination today. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, go ahead. We're talking about someone who's filled with the Spirit of God. And matter of fact, the descriptions of some of the prophets is that, you know, the Spirit of God came upon him. Mm-hmm. And uh, there, there's this discussion of God empowering, and that's going to become very important in the first prophet, or the first judge's story. Um, the idea in judges isn't to show that, Hey, we got these great people who, who rise up, take this leadership position because they're somehow worthy of it. It's the exact opposite. It's the nature abhors the vacuum thing. Yeah. yeah. And (laughs) well, and and, God's, I'm trying to remember what, what exactly it is. Uh, the, I can't remember how exactly it's phrased, but basically opportunity exists where someone else, like where neglect is present. Um, it, it was, it's one of the things like Jordan Peterson's working on. He's, <laughs> he's disclosed what his next 12 rules for life are. And that's one of, it's something to that effect is one of gotcha. them. Gotcha. Okay. Well, th- this is when they're talking about the judges. The only reason why they can be a judge is because God empowers them. And, and I think we're already, you know, not to give a spoiler, but I think we've all heard about Gideon being, you know, that mighty man of valor. The guy is chicken. He's one of the biggest cowards in the world. The only reason he can have any courage and bravery is when God is actively moving in his life. Right. And the the whole book, um, there's an implied critique against almost every judge in the book. Uh, I think maybe the first one and Deborah are the only two that don't have a critique against them now you have so, something no i was looking at this quote i just wanted to get it right i'm sorry the, the quote from earlier is a uh, notice that opportunity lurks where responsibility has been abdicated okay <laughs> i can see that and I, th- I think that kind of applies to what you're saying is that there's lots of people who are going well no one else is stepping up and if i'm in charge you know and i take care of these bad guys then people are going to owe me something i think yeah there's definitely an element of that because i mean this this still is a period of time where if you wanted to be in charge of people you you needed to win Mm -hmm. you needed to be stronger you needed to be better and faster and god empowers them to do so and that's you know and some of them were 
either naturally inclined. Uh, we've got some outsiders who weren't even Jewish who become judges. Uh, so they weren't necessarily doing it for God's glory. We have some who want to get out of it, like Gideon, mm-hmm. but still somebody has to do it. And these are the people that God has chosen. Well, even the guy that Deborah talks to, he huh. doesn't want to go into battle. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. So, I mean, we've, we've yeah, it's, it's all over there. It's, it's a messed up period of time. Uh, but speaking of periods of time, uh, dating this book, uh, we don't have a, a good way to date this book. There's, you know, we've left Egypt. So all of our hard and fast archaeological um, information is pretty much out the window at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, we do know that it, in, it begins with Joshua's death and it ends with the appointment of Saul pretty much. Mm-hmm. And now we know that we can pretty much pin down Saul's coming to, to the power around 1090 BCE. Okay. So we're, we're good with that date. The problem is if you go back and you try to construct a timeline uh, from that date backwards, there's so many ways you can do it. Uh, Basically, there's two main numbers, 234 years to 480. So no precision in there at all. Uh, Yeah, well, and that's. That's just the way things were written. People weren't weren't concerned about dates like we are. Like we're obsessed with it in modern history. Oh well, yeah, and, and most of the the dates and the number of years, like you know, it says twenty, forty, eighty years, whatever. Those are symbolic. They they may or may not be literal. Um, the idea wasn't to record an actual passage of time. The idea was to to give you a concept of what was going on during that time, and so. And the the thing is, if anybody else has been listening to the Naked Bible, Heiser has just, you know, we're going through, he's going through Exodus mm-hmm. and he has spent so much time talking about the dating of Exodus and the events. If we could nail down when the Judges, the book of Judges begins, mm-hmm. we could answer all those questions Heiser's asking. Right. So if Heiser doesn't or, have or many a, of them, yeah, if Heiser doesn't have a good answer to this. We certainly don't have one. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely a little more thorough, has a little more time to do it. Now, as far as authorship, uh, the Talmud claims that Samuel wrote Judges. Probably very unlikely. Um, so we really don't know who wrote it. Uh, we, we just, there's no clue or no indication. So all we do, all we have is that, um, that tradition. Uh the idea is that they're trying to present this very chaotic time. It's full of evil. The, the, the refrain, it's four times in the book, and everyone did what was on their, right in their own, li- own eyes because there was no king. Right. And um, That sounds familiar. Right. And, Moving uh, on. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Judges is really written with the idea that people need a king. One of the things, one of the ways it could have been written, uh, scholars have proposed a few ideas. It could be a collection of uh, stories from individual tribes and towns that an editor later pulls together. Mm -hmm. And that way they can preserve history and tradition. There might be some truth in that. The problem is the Bible never just writes something in order to preserve a timeline or historical record. Right. It's to teach a theological lesson. Sure. So we've got more than that. Now, we do have evidence of an editor. So this is the reason why I don't have a huge problem with this. Um, 
we've got several scriptures, uh, 111, 123, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, 1910, 20, editing of city names. All of these, okay, they, they, the city was called this, and now it's called that. So obviously an editor was at work. Right. Uh, we have historical notes, like, to this day. Right. So that gives you an idea that whoever's writing this, it, if they're either writing the original stories or they're editing. They're writing it, in retrospect. It, exactly. Um, we have so many references. Uh, at one, chapter 1, verse 21, chapter 19, 30, 18, and 30. Um, now, 1830 references the cult, uh, that uh, a style of worship that was practiced by the Danites. and um, it was an Assyrian religion, and that did not come into being until 734 to 732 BCE. Okay. So we know that the final edition of Judges can't be older than, uh, it can't be newer than that. Okay. So it, it's at least that old. Um, but at the same time, the Song of Deborah, we can date it back to the 11th century. So, and remember with uh, BCE, you're going backwards. So the sure. bigger the number, the, the older it is. Yeah. So seven is a lot newer than, than 11. Um, a lot of scholars think it was written during the monarchy. And so as a prophetic book of basically saying, hey, when we acted this way before, when we started worshiping idols, this is what God did to us. Well, see, and I, I kind of wondered about that if this was written as kind of a, if maybe Samuel did write it as a propaganda piece. I mean, to, to say, hey, this is... I, I personally think it's later. I, I think the, the behaviors that it addresses best are with Manasseh, the King Manasseh. Okay, yeah. And so I've kind of leaned that direction. Um, now, I, I do have another question. You, you mentioned mm -hmm. the, the cultic practices that Dan was taking part in uh -huh. were, were, not, um, <laughs> were not around until later. Sorry. Yeah. Um, but... Is it is it possible there was some editorial kind of updating to use that cult as a stand-in for what they were doing, um, just to give the people like a, a a reference, like you know, it could, you know, because because if you think about it, to to use a term like, uh, you know, we we use the term pagan mm -hmm. to describe a lot of religions that aren't Christian, right. And so, but they aren't necessarily actually pagan. Quote, pagan, yeah. right? So I, I kind of wonder if that would have been uh, something just kind of linguistically that they would have put in there. That's a good question. Um, as an editorial update, is like, oh, there's this religion, but we don't really know what they were like. Right. We have little bits so, and pieces. Yeah. So we'll just use the. Well, we know these people are bad, so we'll use their name. Well, uh, to talk about it, and, and we're going to get into actually some of that with chapter one uh, that describes something. Well. The, the chapter one doesn't describe it, but we're actually going to see how it works. Like um, we have two goddesses who show up very early on. One is Azanoth and one is uh, Asarte. Mm -hmm. All right. And so there is, um, there's some confusion because Mesopotamian Canaanite gods and goddesses blurred into each other. Right. There's not a single, you know, you can have, one is differentiated for a moment in time or in a specific place of geography, but she may show up under another name in a different place or a few years later or a few years earlier. Mm. 
And so to say... Or may show up as the same name, but being the regional version of that. Exactly. Well, and you actually see that in a... I know we've referenced this a few times, but it's just a really good work of fiction for talking about this. But Neil Gaiman's American Gods. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I haven't I haven't watched the show yet, but I've read the book uh, twice. I think your copy's at my house. Uh, probably. Yeah, I've read the book twice. Very interesting book. But the the fact that, uh, spoilers, it's a book that's, what, 20, 30 years old, right. something like that. I mean, it's, it's an older book. It's fantastically written. I can't recommend it because it's rough. But... Uh, it's R-rated at least. At least. So, um, so yeah, if that, that kind of stuff bothers you, I don't recommend reading it. If that kind of stuff bothers you, I don't recommend reading Judges necessarily. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> there's although Neil Gaiman's a little more explicit and stuff. But there is, and, you know, spoilers, at the end, he runs into Wednesday again back in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it's, and there's like, it's the same Wednesday, but it's not... not- but it's not the same Wednesday. Exactly. And this this is a whole field of study in academia. It is fascinating. Matter of fact, I, I have another book that we're going to reference uh, later on. I'm going to read some quotes from because this guy explains this concept so well about how the gods of this, these regions, they could be manifest in different areas, but it never fully exhausted the true God. Even though a god could be present in this idol in this city, and then he could be present in an idol in this city, but he was not fully exhausted by being present in that place. And so it's, it's fascinating because you really have to realize the idea of embodied God, like we see with Christ, was not a new concept. Mm-hmm. The, the people of Canaan, the people of, of the Middle East, they would not have been shocked by this. Matter of fact, uh, the book, um, is written by a Hebrew scholar. Not and, surprising. Yeah, and he explains why uh, the embodiment of Jesus isn't counter to what the Bible is teaching. And he's not even a believer in Jesus. He's just saying this is not counter to what the Bible taught, and it wasn't even counter to what Jews believed up until about 150 AD or so. Is when, when, when they tried to really separate themselves from it, Christianity. Exactly. Well, and... and- and that's actually, there's a lot of that. I can't remember what it's called. You'll probably know the name of this, but there's a lot of that similar idea in Greek thought mm-hmm. that, that focuses around objects. Um, and uh, Maxie Birch talks about this in his History of Christianity podcast, where there's this idea of, you know, um, all things exist. There's an archetype mm-hmm. of all things that exists somewhere within thought, and it cannot exist um in the physical realm, we can only create representations. Yes, but of every, the ideal. <laughs> but every representation is part of that. And I can't remember what this philosophy is called. Yeah. Um, but you know, say you know, like a chair. There's, you know, different types of chair, but they're all, the, but they're all the the same archetypal chair. But they're also not the archetypal chair. Right. But they can't exist without the archetypal chair existing in, uh, out in the ether as a concept. So and. Um, <laughs> No, <laughs> well, a really great uh, fiction work to illustrate this idea is uh, Stephen Lawhead's Song of Albion. Oh my goodness, and that's a great series. That is a fabulous series. Um, so love that book. But okay, back to Judges, uh, because we've got this idea that it could have been written as a, as a prophetic warning that basically says, hey, if you guys are going to act like you don't have a king, well, even though you do, you aren't going to have a king for long. Right. And I will send you into troubled times because I've done it before. Uh, 
you know, God, God doesn't play around. There's certain things that you, lines you just don't cross with him. Um, we, I, I mentioned this before, we don't have a lot of archaeological uh, data about this time because we're still dealing with a lot of nomadic tribes. The, the city states that were, um, or the cities that were established during this point in time don't have a lot of distinction from the Canaanites who were there. So mm-hmm. it's very hard to say, yes, this was Israel. Well, wouldn't you go in and if you were driving the people out, unless you were just completely burning the town to the ground, you'd probably just inhabit a lot of the existing structure. Well, yeah, I and, and that's the thing. It, and contrary to popular belief, not only were they not supposed to burn every city to the ground, but they were also, um, they didn't burn some of the cities down that they should have. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was still there. Um we do have what what we do have as far as proof, quote unquote, that they were around. We have an Egyptian Stella that mentions Israel by name and says it was laid to waste. And we have what are known as the Armana letters. Mm-hmm. And these are cuneiform letters between the Canaanite kings and their Egyptian overlords. Hmm. And so um, we have letters to Amempa. Menhotep, I can't even say the word, Amenhotep III and Akhenaten um, writing back and forth to these Canaanite kings, mm-hmm. and um, they discuss some of the things. What we know about the history is pretty much going to come from the Bible, and so mostly the book of Judges, Ruth, some in Samuel, and a little bit in Psalms. Yeah. And um, there, this is a weird time as far as their structure. Mm-hmm. Because the the tribes, they're functioning independently, but they're still very much a nation. So they're one way to think of them is a, a confederation. It, or if you've studied Scottish and Irish history, a, a very similar idea that you know each tribe is self governing, but then they still are connected. Are you talking about like old Celtic mm-hmm. history? Yeah, where they're they're all they all kind of live amongst themselves. They'll fight amongst themselves. Um, but, but don't let an con- outsider come but in. But they're connected by the same language, and they they can rally together and be be very formidable to outside forces. Right, right. And and Block really pushes that they are a single nation. Um, he he's he talks about that whenever the Bible is talking about them, most of the time it doesn't use the individual tribal names. We mm-hmm. talk about the tribal names with action, not as an overall theme. So when God talks about Israel, he talks about the sons of Israel or the nation of Israel. Mm-hmm. He's not talking about uh, an individual tribes most of the time. Uh, so his collective anger is towards them. Um, we also know that it's very important that all 12 tribes remain because mm-hmm. in the last part of the book, Benjamin almost gets wiped out and right. this is a cause for great concern. So we want the entire um, collection of, of the tribes there. Um, and 61 times, I've got this little note here, that 61 times are referred to as the sons of Israel. So as a collective, that's a lot. because judges quite a bit, yeah. Yeah. And then Judges is a fairly short book. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And um, also the, the last half where we talk about the Levite and the concubine, which is going to be an interesting story to get through. Uh, uh, the the Levi there illustrates, you know, he talks about let's not go to the city of foreigners. So there still was a distinct identity of the Israelites within 
the community. Sure. So we, we have these little linguistic um, clues, and those are important. So the other thing to be aware of is to recognize that we, as we do have this editor, the book has been divided up into three parts. So the first is the prologue, and we're going to spend a lot of time in the prologue when we get into... Um, start up next week. Yeah. And so this is, it's verse one, going through chapter three, verse six, and it explains all of the, the source of the problems, the failure to drive out, you know, which is just the, the failure to drive out the Canaanites. This is where everything starts to go wrong. So one through chapter three, the first part of that, that's your prologue. Uh, the book of Delivers, that picks up with chapter three, verse seven, and goes from 1631. And it explains the consequences of failing to drive out the Canaanites. But more than that, it shows that God is still faithful. And I, this is the thing about the book that I don't think a lot of people recognize. Yes, the people screw up. Yes, the people get oppressed. When they cry out, and they're even crying out in repentance, they're crying out in pain. God has to move. He's moved by that compassion. And that is the real message of the book that no matter how badly they are just making a mess of things, God still loves them despite all this, and he is going to move on their behalf. So we have, in that book of Delivers, we have six cycles of apostasy, punishment, crying out for help, and God's deliverance. Mm -hmm. And so in each time, we go a little deeper. It's like the spiraling cycle. We go a little deeper, and everything gets worse until by the time... We get to that last judge. He's mm. really not even a hero anymore. Right. He's just barely <laughs> holding it together. Yeah. He, he is like the anti-hero, Othniel, the first one. He makes perfect sense. We like him. He, he's a good guy. And our last hero is Samson. And he is just, oh my goodness. And he's barely a hero, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, that, <laughs> that, oh my goodness. That, that story has been so... Uh, butchered white, well i would say whitewashed <laughs> for sunday school yeah i mean but man we we were told to you know be like samson be like samson no nope. <laughs> um things, that does not sound like a good idea things you don't want to do well i don't want to spend my time tying foxtails together for one but um and who knows what philistine prostitutes will give you i mean there's like just yeah, well, let's so, let's save that for when we get to, get Sam to Samson. Samson. Okay, <laughs> um, but okay. So after Samson, then you go into the epilogue, and the epilogue is really about the Levite and his concubine, and the horrifying solution that they come up with. It, it's it's yeah. awful. I mean, we start out with a rape and murder, and we end up with a mass rape and murder, mm -hmm. and so it. This is not a pretty story. It's not one that most preachers are going to preach from the pulpit, um, but it's important or God wouldn't have put it in there. Right. And but yeah, it's it's definitely quite a ride. So I'm looking forward to a lot of this stuff. Did you have anything else um, um, as far as introduction to judges and what know, we're doing here? I, I think most of the rest of it, I am I can probably... How are we doing on time? Let, let's ask that. Oh, we're we're... Uh, right about where we need to be. Right about I mean, where we need we to be. We can go a little over if you got something else that you want to throw out. I, you know, um, just real quick, because um, I've got some other stuff, but it'll come up later. 
uh, I never know how much information I need for these. Uh, but he, it, th- this book, we did not choose it because we wanted to have another focus on the women book. And right. But at the same time, when I got to studying, this is actually one of the books that feminist theologians and by feminist, I'm not talking about any kind of political affiliation. I'm talking about a theological field of study that focuses on women's matters. Mm -hmm. And so um, this has been a book that they focused on. And what's really amazing in this book is the women are not stereotypes. They are not just pawns. They have a will. They engage with their culture. And anytime there's an abuse of, of women, it is always attributed directly into uh, to idolatry mm-hmm. and turning away from God. And that the women who, who are privileged enough to belong to those time periods when God is being served, they're actually elevated. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a really interesting thing to, uh, to be aware of. Yeah. And so I, and I can't wait to get to Deborah, of course. No, it's, it, it's exciting. And the reason I, we, uh, the reason I thought we chose the book is just because there are a lot of bizarre stories and that's kind of, lo- that's mm-hmm. kind of our wheelhouse is oh, yeah. looking at the weirdness. Yeah. Hence faith and other oddities. Yeah. And this, it, this is weird. And, but yeah, the women actually start with chapter one. It, we have our first woman who just stands up and says, Hey, you don't get to miss me. And right. you didn't get to overlook me. And I, these stories make me happy um, because I think as a woman uh, in, growing up in church, I often felt like, well, who do I d- identify with and how do I find somebody in the Bible that I can pattern myself after? And so you've got Ruth. Uh, no, hold on. No, not no, Ruth. Not Ruth. No, I was going to say, no, no. Grow, growing up, like it was like you had Mary and you had Martha. Those are your options. Right. Pick one. Uh, well, are then, you in the kitchen or are you studying? And but the, if you study, don't teach. Well, and then if you're in the kitchen, well, why aren't you studying more? And if you're studying, well, you're just being lazy. It, it becomes this total schizophrenic message that women get in the church. And it's ridiculous because you can't win. Right. And so, and anybody who knows me, the moment you set up a no-win situation, I'm done playing. Right. And right. so, anyway, but I, I think this is going to be a fun story, a, a, a fun steady um i think we're gonna cover some things that people haven't thought of before i know i'm learning things i hadn't thought of before right well and and i know uh, from personal experience like i said uh like i said in the warehouse i had uh you know when i was working at the in the mail room there at bluefish there were a lot of um (laughs) there were a lot of things in the book of judges that i know i had read before but it's it and i know and I, I know, I think I'm figuring out kind of what some of it is because we did grow up reading the King James Version. Right. And that's what we were told, like, was the best translation growing up. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I remember even having the conversations when the NIV version was starting to become oh, yeah. popular. Like, <laughs> our church, man, there was a ruckus debate over mm-hmm. whether or not you should even own one. Mm-hmm. Book of the devil. Yeah. And it was, it was really amazing. And I know that that probably makes the church we grew up in sound a little more cultish than it actually was. Right. But it was just small town. A small town. It was and, 80s, 90s. Yeah. And or at least when we when engaged. We yeah. yeah. And and so, yeah, we were, you know, I've read most of the Bible and I, I understood quite a bit of it in the King James. Excuse me. But 
I think going back to it as an adult with a, with a translation like the ESV, mm-hmm. where things are a little more fleshed out, things are a little more uh, raw. The King James can make the most violent of acts sound <laughs> kind of noble and grand just due to the nature of the language. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, yeah, we're not used to speaking that way. And so it, it really takes a lot. And it, it is kind of like... Uh, it, you know, it's like the jokes you don't get watching Shakespeare, right? You know, or, or Bugs Bunny. <laughs> or Bugs. So, so yeah, that that to me, I think that's what a lot of it is. But I just, I do remember going, now wait a minute, that's, and I actually like, I would listen to it, and then I'd have to get off work and be like, I've got to go. <laughs> Did they read, read that right? <laughs> yeah, I've got to go read this. That guy is—is is he really reading the Bible? I mean, but it's in, it was in the, you know, it's in the Bible app. Well, and we should point out that this is, this is going to be a gruesome, violent book. Um, It's violent because God is truly trying to illustrate what happens when you're not walking with him. Mm -hmm. When you fail to observe the basic commandments that he has given you. And it's funny that the, the commandments are getting in trouble for throughout the book. It's not, you know, the little ones of, you know, washing their hands or you know spitting on the side these are don't worship other idols don't marry your kids to these people and don't make covenants with them Mm -hmm. three things you know it's like just do these three things and i'm gonna bless you and they won't even do that right and so um just be aware there's some scatological humor in this um poop jokes yeah she's saying See, I said it classy, like the King James would have. Uh, so, but the uh, so there's a lot of sex, there's sexual violence, and um, this is part of our sacred text. There's also dismemberment, dismemberment, um, lots of dismemberment, lots of dismemberment. Yeah. So, but because it is part of our Bible, I think it's we need to be studying it, and I think we need to not shy away from it, and there's something God wants to teach us within this. Right. So that's kind of where we can figure out what it is. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a good place to drop it for this week. Um, So everyone, thank you so much uh, for joining us. If you like what you heard, please, please like share, comment, uh, get involved. If you have questions, hit us up Raven Creek SC on any social media ravencreeksc.com gets you to our show page where you can also find companion pieces and some other blog posts from Emily and one or two from me uh, eventually. And then uh, also gets you to all of the Raven Creek shows and um, and links to further resources links, for each oh episode. Yeah, links to further resources for each episode as well as you can also, if you really, really like what you heard, you can find there's a support link and you can... Uh, maybe pass us a couple bucks to kind of keep keep our hosting fees paid up and uh also if if you give us enough we will give you some rewards we're not above bribery here so um but they're called rewards um for legal purposes so anyway thank you again so much and we will see you next week bye bye you've been listening to the faith and other oddities podcast a raven creek social club production Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.